Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Mirko. I'm your host, Mirko Bamasa, and I'm from Coffee Fixation. I'm hosting another episode uh, with a coffee professional. Uh, today we got Benjamin Put. I'm very excited to have you. If you're new, just feel free to share this with your friends. And uh, the man himself is uh, right on time. Let's bring him up. Hey. Good evening, sir. How are you? Fantastic. How are you doing? Really, really well. Um, it's, um, thank you. Thank you so much for coming, uh, Ben. And it's so good to meet you. And um, I really appreciate you giving, giving us your time and your uh, yeah, time in these difficult times. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, it's super neat to be on here. You've had, like, so many interesting coffee people. So it's, it's fun to get to be on here. You're definitely amongst them. It's just a matter of <laughs> who's coming at, at what stage and uh, yeah. everyone's uh, story. And uh, first and foremost, how, how are you and your family doing this uh, sort of interesting times? Yeah, yeah, definitely a, a big uh, life changer for, for us. Um, so generally, most of my year is a good portion of it's traveling. Um, so often I would travel three or four months out of a year. So that's been a, a big change. It, it's been really nice. I think, I think for me, realizing how hard flying is on your body, uh, like, like I, I, in terms of time zones and just the impact it has on you physically. And then it's been nice to have more time with family. But on the, the business side, um, many Canadians uh, started drinking coffee at home. So if you're a roaster in Canada, things aren't so bad, um, just because lots of people are brewing at home. There's still like... A, there's not a lot of regulation in Canada. Um, so cafes are still open. Uh, you can sit in some of them with some reduced seating. Um, so, so things are, are quite a bit different, but at the same time compared to some other countries around the world, I, th I think we, we, um, we're a little bit lucky in terms of uh, our ability to move around. And, um, and it's for better or worse, it's up to us to try and remain safe and follow the proper gui guidelines. It's so great to hear, and uh, it, it's good that you can still find uh, positives amongst uh, amongst the, the the you know wide amount of negatives out there, and uh, the fact that you can keep open coffee shops, it's just yeah, it's a bonus for sure. And um, we're gonna go back onto home brewing in a minute because uh, uh, you touched base on that. But uh, Ben or Benjamin, first and foremost. Either one's good with me. Most people call me Ben, uh, but uh, I like Benjamin too. So you you can choose choose your own adventure. I'll, I'll go. I'll go for I'll go for the least amount. Uh, Benjamin, um, could you kindly tell us a bit more about your uh, how did you start your coffee journey? Yeah, absolutely. So I um, like many people. I started working for one of the the larger chains in Canada, um, a place called Second Cup. It's not really known anywhere outside of Canada, but it's sort of like the, uh, it's almost like the Starbucks, it was the Starbucks of Canada until Starbucks really started stepping up and now Starbucks is the Starbucks of Canada. Um, yeah, and I'm, uh, and I'm old enough that I was a barista before there was lots of latte art on YouTube and things like that. And my, my boss uh, one day brought in a newspaper article that talked about latte art. And from this newspaper article, I decided that I was going to learn how to pour latte art. And we didn't even have like a, 
like you know how you need like a pitcher with a like a point kind of like that to pour that dirt. We had one of like the bell pitchers, um, where like you pour and it's basically just a, a waterfall of milk. Um, and so that's what I was trying with, and and I would um, I would try and pour stuff, and and sometimes it would work. And then I like th this is how old old I am. Um, like I had like a little film camera that I would take pictures of these just like terrible pours, um, but I I thought they were really special. And then on top of all this, it was mostly a takeout cafe, and the the rule was that if you made someone like a to go latte, you would pop a lid on it. So most of the time, if I got anything good, it was usually would have a lid on it uh, by the end. And then I um, I moved, uh, that was in, in Edmonton, and I moved to Calgary, and then started applying at some shops that were actually focused on latte art and copy quality, um, and worked for a shop for a while there while I was going to university. Uh, I was studying music. And then after that, I started at a shop called uh, Phil and Sebastian. They were one of the uh, I think earliest adopters of of specialty coffee within Calgary. Um, they're and they're really focused on quality. And I started as a barista there, started to get into uh, quality control and training. And eventually, by the time uh, I was wrapping up at Phil and Sebastian, I was uh, also in charge of some of their coffee roasting. Um, that was also when I started to compete. So the I competed for four years before I won my first national. So it took a, a long time. I actually got second in Canada three years in a row. Um, each actually twice to like very good friends. So it was it was definitely bittersweet. And, but it was neat to get to see your friends um, succeed and compete. And then in two end of 2014, uh, I started Monogram Coffee with uh, two of my friends, uh, Justin and Jeremy. We started as this tiny little pop-up in an art gallery. We had like a one group uh, GS3 and a grinder and like we had, we had built the cart and we were, it took a long time because we're not, we're not super handy and we were really proud of it, but I, I don't think it was that good. And then um, after that, we secured a, a lease in our first shop, uh, built out that shop with some friends, started that. And then since that time, we've opened two more. And in 2017, we started uh, poppy roasters uh, as well. So we've been roasting for um, almost almost three years, I think, just coming up on three years. Wow, that's that's a bit a bit of a story. And uh, I mean, let me saying, oh my fucking god, that would be the best place to work. And uh, yeah, I took the degree. And and um and just um. And just on that, I mean, I think it's uh, it's great. I think you you guys took the risk on you know what one group machine on on a car, and uh, I think that you kind of have a good relationship with taking risks. Uh, going back to your uh, uh, WBC performance, um, how how important is take risks, regardless competition or business? Yeah, I think mindful risks. I would I would say. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, mindful risks. Yeah, um, I, I think one of the things that I think makes it so important in um, in coffee is, is something, I don't know what it's like around the world, but I see it quite a bit where often the people that co start coffee shops aren't the people that are often directly behind the bar. Because like basically, if, even, even at the best coffee shop, you're not going to be making enough money to easily... Um, to outfit a cafe, build it, c cover payroll, all that stuff without it being a huge risk. 
but I think it's super important. I think that when people that worked as baristas start shops, they have um, an understanding of where coffee is in that particular microcosm, whether it's the city, the province, the, the country. And it gives them goals about how they would like to see specialty coffee change. Um, I think if you haven't worked in behind the bar, uh, you don't have the rapport with your community, you can start a shop and be really successful, but I don't think it always pushes things forward. Um, so on the business side, I think I wish more baristas would take risks. I also think that they can be very successful because for the three of us, uh, we had all worked in the Calgary coffee scene for a very long time. So we actually had uh, many, many people that were customers that cared about us and wanted us to succeed. So I would also say sometimes what you think is a big risk might be a little bit safer than, than what you think. And then, and then more broadly in terms of coffee, I, I think people should uh, take more risks. I think there's a bit of a, um, there's a double-edged sword to the internet now where information is readily available. I think that it's allowed people to learn really quickly. We can disseminate ideas and philosophies really quickly. But I, again, coming back to how old I am. You know about it. When I first started in coffee, you basically tried a bunch of stuff because you didn't, like this was before people would weigh even their doses, um, let alone their outputs. Um, and, and back in those days, you were just trying a lot of stuff and, and, and putting theories behind things. And I think it's not that I, I think that we've lost innovation because of that. I think we've just lost some of the sense of wonder uh, behind coffee that, is, that starts when people first get into coffee. Like for me, it was definitely like this, this learning experience that was a long journey. And I think sometimes in, a, in an effort to create standardized drinks and standardized um, coffee, we, we've removed that step where people are taking risks and trying new things and, and sort of seeing what they can explore in terms of how coffee works and how it tastes. Which is, which is quite interesting. I think, um, you know, I still, I still remember myself, the click clicks, and uh, incredible how scales now, uh, even at home, are pretty much only with scales, which is anyway yeah. crazy. Well, um, Lamb was saying, talking about hitting the side of the portafilter. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I remember like the base, like, if you were a good cafe, you would knock it with the handle, right? And if you were a bad cafe, you would just, you'd hit it with the, the base. I also yeah. remember the, the only scale we had in the first like good cafe I worked in was a a bathroom scale so you can measure how hard you were you were tamping um, uh, but that was oh. scale. Um. well there you go um i think um yeah it's it's, it's pretty it's pretty interesting and in terms of competition like what 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 do you have to say around risk what do you have to say around the fact that uh, you know to win you gotta kind of think outside the box and you kind of have to just do it yeah so that's also uh, maybe everything will be a double-edged sword in this in this talk um so there's something there's something interesting about competition where um you want there's about so there's a balance to risk so basically um you want to present something to the judges that is novel enough that they talk about it and and you start to get a buzz going because i i think often when people have won over the past few years that you can you can tell there's a, a sort of um, a shift in the crowd and in the judges where they sort of feel like this person has an opportunity to win. But there is a 
a sort of a catch to that. That's there's two things. So the first one is maybe your risk is, is actually not successful. Like creating new things in coffee is really difficult, especially within the format of the rules. The rules sort of paint a, a box and you sort of have to be able to work within that. And then the other one is, this is mostly in a competition setting, but you cannot make your idea so complicated um, or require so much explanation that it takes up too much time. And this is, this is something interesting. So the, the first year, the year I did free the milk was in 2017. And it took like maybe two minutes of the presentation to, to explain it. And, and in, and now all you have to do is say, this is free distilled milk. And so it's almost like you need to find the perfect. So I, I don't mind doing the risk part, but I think when I look back at some, at the, when I competed at worlds every single time I have two minutes dedicated to, to explaining a concept that really is, is only so they can sort of understand what I'm doing. And it's less about the the larger picture behind the whole thing so there's a bit of a balance where you want to have a risky idea, a new idea but you have to make sure that you can explain it to the judges quickly um even like if you think of the fact that now an ek on on the espresso bar is a really normal thing i think matt perger fit it very well into his set it worked well in the routine but that took a long a long time to to explain us watching from home is or, or on, at the competition, it's great to hear the explanation, though, because um, yes. <laughs> I, I, I just watched your uh, 2016 routine uh, just before jumping on here, just uh, just I don't know, because I had time, and uh, it, it was great hearing the explanations. Um, it was really interesting um, to watch again. And Vag is asking, uh, what made you start competing in the first place? Yeah, so. I'm I'm sort of a uh, kind of a naturally competitive person. It it interested me. Um, I think that when I started, so I I decided that I would just try it um, to see um, how it would go. But I think it's one of the best ways to to learn um, about coffee. I think even now, um, every every time you compete, it might be learning something a different aspect. So when you first start, it's like, can you? can you master the technical score sheet? Like, can you tamp straight every single time? You have no waste. And then the next time it might be figuring out about more about dialing um, or, or maybe like your latte art needs improvement. And, and it just keeps moving on and on. And, and you still have to go back and, and refresh those skills. So every time I compete, I have to go back to some of those early steps. But then also there's new problems that I'm trying to solve. So like how to roast coffee for competition really well, how to, how to source coffees that are, good for competition so for me to answer the question for me uh, one of the most appealing things about coffee is that you will never learn everything about it you'll always be finding something new that you don't know and that you can explore and I think um, the competition is sort of a concentration of that that in competition you basically are always going back to that that continuation of learning yeah and Learning is always important. Uh, it makes you, you know, see your progress as well. Because sometimes we can be hard on ourselves, but it's important to see where, where we, you know, where where we came from. It's like, wow, hang on. I used to work in this whatever Starbucks of Canada, uh, <laughs> putting leads on it with this weird jog, and now I'm, 
doing full immersion espressos into AeroPress in front of wherever it is. Like, I think I think it's important to be kind to ourselves as long as we are aware of there's always room for improvements and learning new things, as you said. Um, but also not not to be overly judge, judgmental towards yeah. ourselves. Yeah, I think that's actually an interesting point that you made that within the competition, you actually have a, a quantifiable measurement of your improvement, um, which is actually can sometimes the move, the improvement can be so small that you don't notice. But if you have a, a calibrated judge, whether it's sensory or technical, that can say like, hey, you actually got better. And that and that actually happened the the first year I went to Worlds. I didn't make finals. I got 11th. And the next year, I actually had almost the same panel um, in semis that I did in the next semis. And afterwards, they met. And they're like, hey, you actually got better. Um, and so it was, ni- it was a nice feeling to like. So I think may- that's an interesting point you made that that competition can also do that. It can measure those sort of micro improvements that you're making that will build up to something larger. Yeah. Um, and going to your point about um, roasting coffee for competition, how important is to build trustworthy long-term relationships at Origin? Um, you know, obviously I know that you, you've been a few times at 90 plus and, most, and many others, I'm sure. Yeah, I think... I think it's really key, I, but for many reasons. So I, I think I think one is, is building that relationship. I think it's just important to anything you do in life to have partners that you trust and uh, want to see you succeed. I think the other thing, if you're looking at purely from a competition standpoint, uh, when you get a chance to work with a coffee and you get like a full a full year or however long you, you have that coffee to, to dial it and brew it, I actually think your understanding of it in, in subsequent years gets better. So we have several farms now that we've worked with them for the, for two or three years. And once you start to know those coffees, they're not, it's not a huge change between coffees, but they're all a little bit different. And if you're working with one farm again and again, it can sort of give you some, some knowledge and some expertise behind it. And I think that's, that's really, really key. And I think it's also neat um, if you can sort of treat some of those relationships as part of your team um, that's helping you build and, and work towards something. Mm. That's great. I think, I think you're right. Relationship building, no matter what you're doing, is just uh, so important. And, uh, and it goes kind of hand in hand with my next question. We all give coffee for granted, yet without its people, which just would be impossible, you know. Um, and I think often we just kind of forget the element of people, whether it's connecting with our customers across the bar or whether it's connecting with the fact that coffee comes from a farm with pickers and, and, and farmers and producers. Um, would you say that this you know, people element kind of got lost in translation, going back to the double-edged sword, the yeah. internet? And- yeah, oh. I, I, I think it definitely has. I think the one of the the hard parts about coffee is because it is such a long chain. Like there's so many hands that, that have touched it. If you think about many of the other products that we consume, the, the step is either shorter. Um, like if I think like we had, we had um, tomatoes for supper that were from a local farm. So like something like that, that's a couple steps. It's, it's easy to trace that chain. And then on the very far extreme, you have something like, the the sugar that you eat you would probably never be able to figure out where it's coming from even if you're buying 
the most expensive, best server in the world. And then coffee finds itself somewhere in the middle where the, the chain is really big, but we also have a, a deep desire. And I also think like a obligation to, to explore and break down that chain. And we've started to make strides. Like we, I think we do a better job talking about producers, but only if those producers are, are have found the agency to, to sort of um, push that a little bit. Um, and then it's also tricky, like trying to balance um, the, trying to connect all that community, but still be respectable of producers and not use that relationship with producers um, as just like as cheap marketing. And then the hard, the hardest thing in my mind, and I don't have a, an answer for this, I only have the question, is how do you properly represent um, and compensate all the pickers? I think that's one of the, the hardest ones because most, most uh, countries don't have permanent pickers. They're often um, the workers that, that move from place to place. And, and I think that is maybe they're the most vulnerable out of all of them. Um, I think they're the hardest stories to tell. They're the hardest, coming back to measurement, it's the hardest to sort of um, keep track of like how they're doing. Um, is their plight improving or getting worse? And, and I think this is gonna be a big question in coffee. For many years, the producer was um, in the shadows and we had to, to talk more about that. And we still have work to do there. There's many smallholder producers that, that don't get the attention the respect and the compensation that they deserve. But shortly behind that, there's going to be a big, I think it should happen already, but there, I think there will be more and more of a realization that the people that are picking our coffee um, need to be recognized as well. And it raised such an interesting and complicated yet point where maybe we should look at innovation. Because often we think innovation as a business point of view, and we think uh, how can we make this faster? How can we optimize this? But innovation can also be done in a human level, at a human level, and innovating and making things better. I think that probably, uh, you know, pricing is a starting point because ultimately they are giving up their time and their labor in exchange of uh, a ridiculously low uh, pay at the moment. So price definitely is one. Um, I had an interesting, Smaya had an interesting comment about uh, the farmers she works with, which is, she was around the lines of even talking to them um, and, you know, obviously with the, with the limits of language, but sharing a cup of coffee and talking to them and showing them how much you appreciate the coffee when you are there or online is a little bit difficult if they don't have access to the online world. And the third part is, I think consent is also important when it comes to photographs yeah. and using those photographs um, accordingly uh, in a respectful way. And if there's consent, uh, it can't be always 100%, but uh, that, that will also be maybe uh, three interesting points to look at and then evolve from there. Yeah, and I, I think also, um, I think it's more on the minds of producers as well. So uh, many of the producers that... Uh, I know and that we purchase from, like you can tell that they really care about pickers. Um, um, like I know at the Lamastis farm, Alita Estate, they um, bring in a doctor to check on um, all the kids that, of the, that are children of pickers. They like bring them gifts. They're really trying to make sure that they're healthy. They're trying to ensure that they're going to school. And so I think that's also a movement um, 
within pickers, uh, within producers, where they are starting to try to empower their pickers more and also make sure that they're well taken care of. So if it, it could be amazing if, if both the the roaster community where they're purchasing the coffee and the and the producer both have that common vision. I think together they could do something huge. Yeah, yeah, and and perhaps uh, I think that um, recently I shifted my mind very quickly thanks to Andre. I'm not sure if he's still in the chat, Andre Ehrman, because he read he wrote such a very interesting point in terms of. He was describing, and his words much better than mine, but he was describing how it actually would be amazing if the commercial side of coffee kind of got into specialty as long as they pay a fair price because then they would be able to buy a larger volume, therefore larger profits for farmers. And again, um, my words don't, don't make justice to how here is, uh, how Andrew explained it. And I was like, and I had to sit, sit on it and think about it. And I think it's, I think it's quite correct on a logical level. So I think that um, we got a big role in not demonizing necessarily commercial, uh, but just maybe perhaps thrive towards working together rather than against. Uh, yeah. And just, yeah. I think there's also, um, I think there's a, some people are trending away from it, but in I think for a long time in, in green buying, the there was, well, for a long, it's it's starting to be have more more women in it. But for a long time, it's very. It still is mostly a male dominated industry, and I think the male machismo comes in, and their goal is to find the best farm, and find the best coffee from that one farm, and only buy that coffee. And so basically, the producer spent the same amount of money, the same amount of time processing those other coffees. And I think coming back to like buying in bigger volume, I think that needs to happen more often. Where um, where more roasters need to commit to buying the entire harvest from that producer. Um, I don't think like, I think that something I was chatting with someone else about this recently, where the coffee industry's idea of ethical is paying a good price for coffee. But like, imagine if you went into a wine shop and the, the person that owned the shop was like, we're a great wine shop. This wine is really amazing. And we paid a lot for it. You'd be like, yeah, you, you paid a lot for a product that's quite rare that other people want. It, of course, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost more. And so something that I think we need to change, if we really want to brag about prices, we should say we purchased everything. We purchased the coffees that didn't score as well, and we're going to figure out what to do with them, whether that's a blend um, or we really work on how to roast them properly. Um, I, I still think that paying high prices is still a rarity in the industry. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not disparaging it. But I think if we sit on that um, as our claim to fame for too long, eventually people are going to start asking like, so, okay, so if you have a really rare Gesha and you pay $50 a pound for it, it was that really amazing? Or did you just need to pay $50 a pound for it? And so I think we need to start thinking of new ways we can support producers. Um, otherwise, we're going to get called out on it eventually. Yeah, I, I, this is another moment where I will need to sit down and digest what you just said. I think it's really interesting. And it kind of popped in my head what um, conversation I had with Tim Wendelbo and uh, he was discussing the importance to him of having this long-term relationship with the same farms, regardless of how their coffee scored that year, regardless of the quality. And his workers were, you know, saying they're kind of a little, getting a little bit bored of having to do 
deal with the same coffee all the times. But he just said that, you know, they don't get the point. The point is that it, it doesn't matter. It's just like the relationship is just the bigger picture rather than um, going and find better pricing or better coffee or other coffees, which is interesting. It goes back to people. So I think relationship, volume, right price. Yeah, look, it's it's a big topic. And uh, Mr. D-Train saying they're only paying a good price for a certain amount of coffee. Roasters are unfortunately scared of the risk involved buying a full farm production. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's exactly it. And that's where Andre was talking about the buying power of more commercial. Um, but then, of course, it brings, are we going to trust that they're going to pay a fair price or they're going to really try to bargain for a cheaper price? Yeah, yeah. Eventually, eventually there's a bargain <laughs> on everything. Because if you buy more, you want a better price. So it's, it, it's interesting. It's definitely a very interesting and big um, topic. But I think it's it requires a platform because I think it all comes down to that gratitude. Like you said, you know, at the beginning, the pandemic is giving you an opportunity to be grateful for um, home brewers because now they can still buy coffee of your, uh, your body is feeling better because you're not flying on the clock. Um, and I think giving this topics a platform is important for people to start appreciating more and be more grateful towards their cup of coffee they have every morning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, we just hit the half mark and uh, I got a routine ritual uh, out of the box question. Um, I hope you're prepared. Um, if you could, who would you like to have dinner with? And it can be anyone. Uh, it doesn't have to be in the coffee industry. Whoever you want. Really? Does it have to? Do they have to have already existed? Uh, nope. Anyway, you, I'm just. This is this is your dinner. So I think. So with with how like unpredictable the world is, it would be interesting to have dinner with someone. It almost wouldn't matter who, but someone that that is from like a thousand years from now. Um, hope as long as there's as long as they're still around. Uh, you might ask for that, and then and then you get back from the whoever is granting your wish that there's no people left, but you know, this uh, maybe like uh, cockroach survived and you can have dinner with them. But it'd be neat to, to, to at least get some, I wouldn't ask too many questions, but just enough to know like how, how worried I should be. Uh, yeah. Okay, that's that's the first one. Um, yeah, y you were ready. <laughs> like that. <laughs> I do like that. Um, thank it's you. A common, uh, a common question I've asked other people lately is like, would you rather go back in time or, or forward in time? And so uh, I would generally rather go back, but if, but I, if I was going to have someone for dinner, I, I would bring them back to our time. It's interesting, um, which is way off coffee, but that's something that I've thought about often when I, when I started living in Australia for the past nine years, and I've noticed across the education system how Australia tends to look um, forward and coming from a European country with such a strong history, we tend to look backwards. And this is not right or wrong, this is not right or wrong. It's interesting how I grew up in a system where it's all about, hey, it's important that you know how you got here. It was thanks to this, 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 this. Meanwhile, here I feel that it's more like, hey, you want to go and be right here in 10 years, you got to do this, 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 this. So it's, 
totally. It's very interesting. You even see, I think you even see it in Australian coffee. I, I often think that if you look at Australia, the rest of the world is at least a few years behind that. Like if you, if you want a glimpse of coffee's future, generally you go look at, at Melbourne and Sydney and, and see what those markets are doing. And it's a good indicator of what's coming up. Uh, yeah. Or you go on to, uh, I guess, James Hoffman has <laughs> prediction at the end of the year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm see. quite good at them. Uh, <laughs> they're quite something. Like I'm, when I read them, I'm usually like, okay, that would make sense. And the rest, I'm like, wow, he's, he's going for it. And then they're usually like James, James knows something that we don't or, or, He's sort of it's sort of insider training and trading. He's got enough power that he's just he's predicting it and then making it happen. <laughs> That's right. Um, and back just say could be a potential barista champ concept. Thanks, Miyako. Yeah, looking forward and backwards. Oh yeah, I didn't even think about it like that. Cool. Um, it's all yours. Anyone <laughs> listening? <laughs> um, you and- take a, a, a commission though if you if you win. No, no, no. Just, 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 just do it. Just, just do it. I just want to see it. Cool. Um, ben, uh, Benjamin, I want to be part of the minority. Um, I really like that you touch base on homebrewing because Daniel Horvath um, mentioned that uh, in a cheeky way. He thinks that the fourth way of coffee is going to be homebrewing. Oh. Um, obviously, he knows that it's not, but it's an interesting concept because COVID forced a lot of people to start brewing more and more at home. Even myself, I used to just like to get my double three, four, five times a day out of the house because I'm always out, support my local businesses. And now I was like, oh, I'm going to start using my grinder and my AeroPress. Um, What do you think and what's your take around that? Because what I'm positively hoping for is that by more people brewing at home, hopefully coffee will start to trend more like foodies where now a lot of people, thanks to the master chefs and all the cooking competitions, they're like, I love cooking. I'm going to start cook because it's my passion. And they do pay the 300 to $200 dinners and pay more for dinner and food when they go. Yeah. I, th- I think it's going to change a lot of things. So I think we've already seen um, a different version, but something similar. So, especially in North America, when especially coffee first started, like the third wave type of thing, um, all these cafe owners told themselves, if I make good coffee, that's the successful business. Like, I don't, I don't need to have good customer service. I don't need to offer anything else. If I, if I serve you something delicious, you're going to come back and back and back. And what happened was other shops started to make good coffee. Because like now, if you, there's lots of training out there. There's lots of good roasters. Equipment's better. You can open a cafe that makes coffee that's almost as good as the shop that is putting more time and more effort into it. Like it, there's small differences. You might be more consistent if you're really, really working at it. But that basically forced the coffee industry to find other things to do. And I think you see that now in cafes. Their their branding's better than it used to be. The spaces are nicer. They might do food. They might do different concepts. And so I think that forced the brand to evolve. And I also think it was really important because. There are people that now purchase specialty coffee where it's not necessarily that they enjoy the taste that much more. It might be that they believe in the ethics of the business model. They might just like the spaces. And so I think ultimately it introduced more people to specialty coffee. And I think this is another version of that where, especially with filter, where now if I have 
filtered water or the like Maxwell just released that peak filtration system. If I have that and I have um, um, like a, a home grinder that has a good particle distribution and I have a V60 and I have good coffee, you can make something as good as any cafe out there. And I think it will have some, I think, will, I think you're right in that it will bring knowledge to a larger community. I think something that could be potentially interesting for it is as people brew at home, they might be more likely to purchase more expensive coffees. I know I'm that way with wine. I, I don't buy super expensive wines at a restaurant because I know that they're marked up because that's what the restaurant needs to do. Um, but I'll buy a nicer bottle of wine for home. And, and so I, I think that might happen where people are trying, like we've seen it where people are more likely to try an expensive coffee when they're brewing it at home. Um, and then ultimately, I think it will force some cafes to figure out other ways to get people into their cafes beyond um, beyond just the quality of their coffee. And I think that's actually always good. I think that the more the more different things we can offer to people to say, especially coffee is great and you should be in, involved in it, I, I think the better. So I think it could be two potential positives for sure. Maybe Maybe we go back to where our hospitality business who serves specialty coffee. Yeah, exactly. I, I, that's, that's a nice way. That's actually the way to phrase it. Um, and, but I, I, think, I think it could be really, really exciting. But then I also think that it's just going to, um, I think it will also help our market share too, where, where people, the more people drink really good coffee, the harder it is you know, to, to go back. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you also push, I think you will also push more and more um, other shops to kind of like, well, hang on. Um, maybe I need to start looking at upping my quality. Um, and it's interesting. It's going to be interesting here in Melbourne because it's a very, I hate using the word oversaturated, but it's quite saturated market. Um, there's, there's shops everywhere and it's like, there's a lot of good coffee out there. So it'll be interesting to see now um, what's going to happen. Um, I think that also, I keep hearing the same sentence. Um, we got to wait until it's going back to normal. And a friend of mine made a great point. He said, well, think about it. I mean, we, you and I are still very young, but if you think about how flights used to be pre-trains, <laughs> a flooded market. <laughs> um, if we think about flying pre-9-11, with all the, you know, being sensitive and respectful of the day, versus flying afterwards, we still got used to the new normal of flying with security measures and we all complied. And it, it, it's just like, to us, it's crazy the idea of smoking on a plane, like on Mad Men uh, TV series. And yet it was not far ago. So I think that we need to start kind of wiring the fact even in coffee, there's going to be, this is going to be normal. It's going to be more online transaction. There's going to be more uh, virtual uh, conversations. It's going to be more home brewers buying expensive coffees. And uh, we just need to figure it out on how to, to you know, what, what do you think is going to be next? Yeah, I, I think the, the only, the pl the only fi place where I've found difficulty, so like, like many others, when, when everything shut down, we moved a lot of stuff online. So we did um, a bunch of classes online. Um, some of our, we've done some training online and, and things like that. The only thing that I, I find tricky is, and, and maybe this will get better as we standardize more and more things, is that when you drink a cup of coffee, it is hard to know if the person on the other side of the video is having 
the same experience um, or is having a different experience? And is, are they having a different experience because it's just them? Like, are, do you have the same product in front of you? And I find that that one's really hard in my mind because especially if, if you're trying to enjoy something together, there's something about the shared experience that I think is powerful in coffee, um, especially, especially delicious coffees. When you, to me, that's the sign of a, a really good coffee where it's so good you need someone else to taste it. Um, and I think that we can still have those moments, but they are quite different when you're not actually, you're consuming the same version in a sense, but it's not the same thing. That's the only breakdown that I've, I've personally felt so far. I don't think there's an easy switch for that. And I think what will happen, I agree that people will adjust, but I think they'll still once in a while be like that, that pang of yearning for some of the, the, old ways and i think if if businesses can find ways to sort of scratch that itch for people um like i don't know what it is but it could be like you have yeah classes at home where people can drink or you design your cafe setup to feel a certain way or finding those little things that can still connect people to their past i think will be really beneficial yeah because because i you know ultimately in this uh, online world it's it's so hard just based on one ingredient water you know it's like you're the same coffee no matter how you brew it but you send it to me to vag and to even the d train it's like it's gonna always taste different um and that's okay maybe if david's brewing it he's like a top brewer so it's gonna taste very different (laughs) it's gonna be tasting very different from mine that's for sure Uh, (laughs) um perhaps we could look at what the online world has been doing and what other what other uh, industries have been doing, maybe creating your roastery and coffee more and more like a mecca, more and more like a, a meetup uh, kind of situation where it's like it's no longer just to come to Monogram to drink a coffee. It's, it's about coming and drinking it with you on one hour, like just the same way as you've done it online, but once a month or a quarter, you, you do like a private... Uh, you know, table chef experience sort of comments where you kind of brew, I, I don't know, there's something along those lines, even though it's yeah. logistically hard, but I don't know, that's what, I don't know, streamers do, that's what YouTubers do, that's what a lot of other industries, like I used to be in the wine industry and I remember taking customers to our vineyard sellers, partners, and give them the full experience from, literally from, grape to, to glass often they ended up drunk so it didn't, <laughs> <laughs> didn't remember it was it. easier it was easier <laughs> but yeah perhaps uh, that's that's interesting um um there was a can't screw it out when you have good green roast and water yeah he's being he's being very humble but so so uh david got a I think it was, I can't remember if it was nationals or regionals, but it got a perfect score in Brewers. Uh, the only, the only person to ever achieve it. He's a, he, he brews a right. <laughs> yeah, he's okay. Not he's bad. okay. <laughs> not a hundred, but you know, not a hundred and one, so. <laughs> um, yeah. um, I got more chances to drink coffee with him one day than, than, than with you. Hopefully I can fly to Canada, but. I str- we struggle now to get to South Australia, Melbourne, so little yeah. alone living countries. So, <laughs> um, now go- going back to the um, difference between industries, 
there are two major differences when it comes to coffee and wine, and that's something that David is passionate about too. One is price, which we kind of have touched base on, and the other one is what we just talked about, the fact that we see now more and more coffee sold overseas, but it's not just quite the same. It's usually very localized, you know, uh, the, the percentages of coffee roasted, because, you know, I'm not sure your number is, but mostly probably in that concentration of Canada or maybe North America, um, but not as much as in Europe or Asia, Australia, Africa. What do you think it could be a good way to breach that gap? Between sort of the, the, the gap of, of locality? Uh, yeah, the gap of availability and kind of make it more, uh, kind of just like, hey, it's like wine. You can buy it no matter where it is. I mean, we all love an, you know, French, Italian, whatever wine, and yet we buy it from all over the world. Mm -hmm. I think one of the hard parts about coffee um, is that in wine, it's up to often one person to interpret that uh, flavor profile. So you have a winemaker and they choose the grape that they're going to ferment. They pick it however they want. They put it in a tank and then they, they decide that the style that they're going to get. And it goes in the bottle and you open that bottle and you get to taste um, as long as that vintage went well, uh, you taste what the winemaker intended. And that on top of that, the winemaker is moving in probably days in the sense, most of coffee, um, once it's past the farm, we're talking more seconds. So like, a few seconds on a roast can ruin the whole thing. A few seconds on an espresso or a few grams. And so our margin of error is higher. But the problem with coffee is you have the producer's intention with that coffee, what they wanted to do. And I think that's getting uh, better and better with technology and knowledge about fermentation. Um, uh, producers, I think, really know what they're putting out. And then it goes to a roaster and they have to interpret that coffee. And then it goes to the brewer and they have to interpret that coffee. And so, and, and often like a, you can have a coffee that was roasted really well to be brewed a certain way. But if the brewer isn't used to brewing in that way, it might taste roasty or it might taste um, un underdeveloped. And so I, I think that's one of the hardest ways to, to to spread it around the world is it's almost like playing telephone where it's like, this is what the coffee's supposed to be. Oh, this is what the coffee's supposed to be. And then it gets, and it gets to the customer like, this is what the coffee's supposed to be. Um, and so I think that's maybe one of the, the hardest things is, and even sometimes like, like no roastery is perfect. Sometimes I taste the coffee and, and whether it's ours or someone else's, I can tell that maybe that wasn't the roaster's intention on how to roast that coffee. And so I think to make coffee truly an international product is we have to start figuring out how that flavor profile and that intention can be carried throughout the whole chain or, or properly expressed. Um, and then, and then you get, get into um all the issues around brewing and things like that. But I think that's currently the hardest one is we don't know what every intent was along the stage. And if we don't know that, then, then what's, how can we tell that to a customer? I think, I think I like that intention is definitely an important word. And that's why I kind of kind of often ask that question because I want to get a better grasp and understanding from people like yourself on what, what's your take. Um, and I think the telephone concept could be another, another barista comp concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah I, th I think you're right. I think there are 
and that's where risk and innovation comes to play. Um, looking at Mame, um, Matthew uh, was talking to me about their new kind of project of where they send a full pack, even including the same water, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting. It's, like, it's kind of like, to my knowledge, one of the first ones uh, to, to a degree of like, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. I never, never personally heard of it. So I think it kind of, this yep. issue is what shall push the industry to think like yourself and take a couple of mindful uh, risks towards try to bridge that gap because that would be fantastic. Yeah, um, I think the water thing is also um, there's um, uh, Cole Tarot here in Calgary. He has a green importing uh, business, and he is. I think he's often sends out samples with uh, like water formulation, so that you're gonna all cup it the same way. So I think I think it's really important. Yeah, so I think I think it's it's small, but it's it's important that those people just starting to take these amazing steps. And uh, uh, Vag is asking you who has been your biggest inspiration in coffee and life yeah so in coffee there's actually two one's coffee related and one's not coffee related at all um so i i think james hoffman to me is like super inspiring i think he's one of the best um uh, often many many of the greatest minds in in other fields um are really really smart but what they're best at is they're best at popularizing their field um so like you think of Richard Feynman, he uh, is one of the greatest physicists of all time, but a big part of his legacy is that he went and taught college level introductory physics. And those textbooks have, have changed the people's love of physics and their understanding of their world. And I think that James has done that. He has, you, he knows as much about coffee as anyone, but he also has a YouTube channel that is intensely entertaining, um, appeals to a broad audience. And I think, we need more people like that where they are popularizers of coffee. Um, I think he's done such a good job. And I think that's often where our, our gap is. I think it's a hard thing to do. And it's it requires a very particular personality. The accent, I don't think, uh, is hurting him at all either. I think that helps in terms of your, your ability to present. Um, so him. And then on the, the coffee competition, this is a weird one. But have you, do you know who Ronnie Coleman is? Sorry, um, I, you first for a second. Oh, yeah, Ronnie Coleman. Ronnie Coleman. You have to Google him afterwards. So he's one of the most successful bodybuilders of all time. Um, he, he's Is the... he? It recalls because I go, my, my personal trainer always drop names and show me pictures. But I'm terrible with names. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen it... him. So, so when I was starting competing, I, like, I followed Ronnie Coleman. And Ronnie has this this concept that was unique to to him versus all other bodybuilders. The bodybuilders would go through seasons, right? They would they would compete and get super fit, and then compete and then and then go to the competition. And afterwards, they would gain all the weight back because it was too intense to be training all year long. And then they would they would just cycle and cycle and cycle. And then Ronnie one day decided that he would always be training. He would always be ready to compete. Yeah, uh, D train now. It's lightweight, baby. Um, <laughs> and, and so basically, uh, from 2014 to 2017, I adopted the Ronnie Coleman uh, model of barista competition. I basically, I there was never an off season for me. I was always training and working on things and and practicing. Um, and I didn't win, so I, I didn't. It didn't work as well as Ronnie. But I 
I think it really formed me in a, in a faster way when we rely too much on external competitions and motivations. Because right now, this is a great point, like there, the next competition is probably could be over a year away. Um, the next regional comp, like we had our regionals in spring. So the next Canadian regional competition could be more than a year. So if you're not, if you're not finding a way to motivate yourself and always be sort of training, I think that uh, you, you're going to atrophy quite a bit. I love that. And I think that's, uh, that's a great point. And I just got a glimpse to the clock and I know that we got, unfortunately, just seven minutes, which is crazy. Um, um, so first of first say thank you for coming. I'm really grateful. I think it was a, an amazing chat and great to meet you. And I really hope to meet in person. Um, Me too. Eventually, maybe with David and Vag all together somewhere. Um, just before he finishes, I just want to leave you with a couple of last questions. So the yeah. stage is yours. Um, ultimately, what's your coffee mission and what would you like to see in the future of coffee and what's next for you? Mm -hmm. So uh, there's, there's, a bunch, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to do. So I think I would love to see um, on the business side, I would like to see the, the, the two endpoints of the coffee chain improve. So basically, um, I'd like to see things that are better for baristas. I also would like to go all the way back to pickers and, and see that pickers have better lives as well. I think if you probably are taking care of both those ends, also everyone in the middle is probably doing fairly well too. Um, I think that's uh, really key. Um, I'd like to see coffee continue to spread around the world and, and people to view it as, as something that's important to them. Um, I think that there's such a large market share that, of people that are still drinking really bad coffee and often for a price that is not that much cheaper than what you could get for something really, really delicious. And then, and then selfishly, um, I think we, we all have like those, those cups of coffees that totally like change our life. And I think that coffee will continue to get better and better and better. And so selfishly, I just want to see everyone get better at, at making coffee and harvesting coffee and roasting coffee. Cause I, I think of how far coffee has come and then it just makes me excited to know that like there are better grinders coming out there. There's better roasters. There's like, new experimentations with varieties where they're actually starting to mix Ethiopian varieties with, with like Central American coffees. And, and so I just want to see everyone get better so I can drink some better coffee. That's beautiful. No one has said that so far. And I agree. Um, and I don't even think it's selfish. I think it's selfless. I think that ultimately perhaps that is going to be one of the major keys uh, for what you want to see in the world. Because if everyone keeps improving, then more people are going to drink it, and more people are going to pay more, then eventually it will be a chain effect, a domino effect, um, all the way back to the people that need, need, need it the most. So I think it's not even that. I mean, I get why you said selfish. <laughs> I want to drink great coffees. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, that was, that was really... I definitely have a couple of concept that you dropped that I need to digest, process, let the brain, my morning brain kind of look yeah. into it. Um, but yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for popping by. I hope that perhaps we could do another of these uh, streams in a, in a month too, or maybe at your roastery, maybe do it. Maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe we can 
drink some coffee together, maybe we can brew together, maybe we can have a tour, whatever, yeah, whatever yeah. you think is cool. Instagram needs to sort out how to get three people on a live though, because I think that would be the next level for for coffee talks. Is get a bunch of a bunch of people that disagree all all together. <laughs> oh yeah, I can't wait for that. Um, but yeah, but Benjamin, it's been it's been a real treat and a real pleasure. So I I will um yeah I'll, I'll shoot you a text. Yeah, at I the have end. A lot. Thanks, Mirko. Thank you. You have a good evening. Thanks, yeah. Bud. Bye bye. There you have it, guys. My uh... my selfish soul has been fulfilled by an hour of an amazing conversation with uh, with Benjamin. I um I gotta say, the first ten minutes I was still waking up a little bit, uh, even though I did work out in the morning. Um, but I, I'm just really interested. Uh, it's just really interesting, despite the questions often being similar. Everyone has a way to answer. Everyone has the way to um, process and they every guest has a different way to sort of explain themselves and and drop new concepts so it's like it's a consistent evolving uh, situation to say that coffee is beautifully personable uh, enjoyable experience on on such a single level as in on a one-on-one -on -one level on a human level so I really, I really appreciate that because it's been, I think, 67 episodes so far and so far we haven't found, we haven't, I haven't found two people that said the exact same thing similar, uh, but yeah, today we touched on an amazing point, so I really appreciate Benjamin for his time and his uh, insights. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you're new, just feel free to reshare this, take a screenshot um, and, and I hope you enjoyed it and uh, hope you're safe and uh, yeah big shout out to people who made it all the way to the end morning usually are are very difficult but um whoever is still in the house thank you i, I really appreciate you guys and uh yeah stay safe keep drinking coffee and uh i'll see you next week with three more guests take care